HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Radio listeners, this is Feast Your Ears, a show about people, life, and food. Join us every Wednesday as we talk about what folks do and how it influences their personal food stories. You probably noticed that this isn't the voice of Harry Rosenblum. I'm Kristen Baylor, the producer of the show, and I'm filling in for Harry while he's in Japan. Today I'm with Chef James Sharman and Kevin McRae. They're London-based chefs who have worked in a bunch of really cool, really famous places. Tom Aikens in London... The Pond in Hong Kong, and most recently, Noma in Copenhagen. For the last week, the two have been working to build an elaborate 40-cover restaurant in an Airbnb in the West Village, and they're going to tell us all about it. Welcome, guys. Hi. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being here. Of course. So we have so much ground to cover, obviously, but I kind of first want to talk about what you've been eating since you've been here. Are we dollar pizza guys? Are we takeout guys? I definitely am, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm dying to get a slice as soon as can. <laughs> I think we're a bit of everything. We try to like we've. I mean, we've kind of been led by a couple of friends of ours that have kind of taken us to a few different places. Um, a lot of kind of street food, but I think that our favourite place we've actually been to was Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. Okay, it was. It's like this. I don't know if you know it, but it's like this kind of amazing sort of. I don't know. It's like a kind of. It's sort of like a street that's completely set aside from the rest of the area. Like most of the Bronx there is pretty like pretty scary for a couple of British guys kind of strolling through there. <laughs> and then there's Arthur Avenue, which is like a safe haven of like Italian culture and like incredible restaurants that haven't changed for 50, 60 years. Markets with like unreal clams. And it's just like stepping back in time. I think that's been the most like, vivid yeah, food experience for us. <clears throat> the clams were personal favorite of mine. Definitely. Cool. So are you the types that gravitate towards junk food when you're so busy that you don't have time to cook We try not to. We uh, drink a lot of vegetable juice. We actually do. (laughs) We really (laughs) always get surprised about that. Um, But yeah, we try try not. I mean, that can happen a lot. You know, you'll end up going to McDonald's or whatever, but we really try not to um, try and look after ourselves. But yeah, we just we're so passionate about food. Then you just we're always on the hunt for something really good. But yeah, like I said, we're just more kind of rustic the better, and we're just... 
Anything that's kind of like personal and, and really honest and sincere. Okay. You know, like there's so many places when you travel to big cities like New York or Hong Kong or London that kind of start off as a great idea and then they get kind of like swept up in corporation and just become copy and paste rubbish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so when, you, when you're somewhere like New York, there's so many places where you can go in and you can meet the guy that lives and breathes the food that he's making, mm-hmm. like little places, especially around here like in Brooklyn. Um, that's something that we've really fallen in love with. Yeah. Awesome. There's sushi place just around the corner. Oh, yeah, that guy was an absolute hero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which sushi place? What is, it called? is it Momo? More, more, more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure, yeah, everyone literally, knows it in the area. Yeah. But, but. We sort of literally walked in and just lost three hours of, like, sake, like, amazing sushi, and really kind of clever stuff that we hadn't seen before. Like, what do you, we have the Stoner's Ramen that uh-huh. he makes there, and it's, like, it's basically, like... Um, it's, to me, I mean, the way it's made is way more like a carbonara, mm-hmm. but they've just, like, replaced everything with uni. So it's an absolute match made in heaven. So you're, you're having a good time. Yeah, we're having a real good time, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your personal food history. Sure. How did it all, how did it all begin? Do you come from a cooking family? Um, I think when you actually speak to most chefs, honestly... They probably don't come from a cooking family because when you start off as a chef, in, you know, in the real world, a lot of the time it's because you know you, you you're six, fifteen, sixteen, and you you need a job. You need to find something you do, and you, you know you get a job in a restaurant. I started by washing up when I was about fifteen, and I fell in love with it. And you you fall in love with the food, you fall in love with the ingredients and, and trying new things, but you also fall in love with a kitchen as an atmosphere. You know, you get really addicted to the intensity and the camaraderie of it. And that's kind of what sweeps you up. Mm-hmm. And that carries you through your first sort of two, three years of, of you know, working in kitchens, training under chefs and peeling onions. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, you start to get a little bit of direction, I think, when you get to 18, 19. I certainly did in my case. And you start to really understand what different food is and what it means and where it comes from and, and where it's going to take you. So then we started to then you start to kind of look at London as well, um, and London obviously is quite is very similar to New York. I think it's very diverse and there's a lot of like infrastructure that's been there for a long time. Like chefs like Tom Akins, for example, he was so embedded into London food, and he's I personally I think he's really shaped a lot of the way London and, and Western Europe eats because he really sort of drove like modern food into the UK, but gave it like style and finesse and character. And that's what kind of lured me there. And I stayed there for a long time because he was just constantly coming up with new ideas. He was almost like a mentor. Kind of, yeah. He's, um, he's definitely a character. Right. But he's, like, he's got a real sort of presence in the kitchen. You know, he, uh, he's the guy that kind of won't take any trouble. <laughs> but no, he's, he's great. You know, he's not like anybody else. Kevin, how about you? Did you come from a, a cooking family? No, not really. Um, so, yeah, I, was, I started in Scotland um, and then made my way down to London um, just for adventure and to you know to branch out really mm-hmm. um, and the first place I worked was Tom Aikens okay. not really knowing what I was getting myself into to be honest mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember that yeah and that's where I that's where I met James because I came down yeah I mean you know the food scene in London but I didn't know it as well as the guys that are living around the area they all just gravitate towards it quite naturally mm-hmm. but Scotland has its own kind of food scene so to, so to kind of break away from that is quite quite a Quite a big move, really. Okay. Um, so once I started there, then it was just like that. It was an addiction, and 
um, we built this kind of strange yeah. <laughs> fridge <laughs> where we just always on the side uh, even though we were working full time we were always on the side we were always trying things doing projects we set up a little street food um, concept for a while just doing kind of high end the high end possible food we could just directly onto the street like literally bringing the things that we learnt in, in Michelin starred kitchens and, and serving it to people yeah, that was on the street funny. and it, we, we didn't do it to make money we'd served it and we, we broke even on it we just we just did it just to see what would happen you know this is the first first time a lot of these people had ever been eating this type of food and they blew them away you know it was quite interesting because street food in London obviously street food here is massive always has been but street food in London's kind of started to pick up but you go kind of you see like six or seven street food stalls in like Canary Wharf or you know in like a really sort of central Soho and there'll be like somebody serving chicken somebody serving a burger and then we've got like miso cured beef with fermented barley <laughs> you know, all of a sudden and people didn't really know what to make of it at first and there's like a team of five chefs like five chefs in chef whites in quite a clean professional kitchen just kind of cracking on it was quite a funny funny sight it was, where, it was actually where we first um, kind of discovered our love for like like customer interaction as well mm-hmm. because yeah. for chefs you're never you're obviously always away in the back of the kitchen even as a head chef it's quite hard to actually speak to your customers mm-hmm. Um that, that's the kind of environment it is in these in these kind of harder kitchens mm-hmm. and we were suddenly just there in front of them and we were serving them the food we were playing up in front of them we were speaking to them and it was just an amazing experience and that's really what kick-started everything that we're doing now because it, it just it opened up our eyes to 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 everything you know um when we have a restaurant now when we do our our pop-ups it's the chefs serve the tables there's no waiters we we cook the food we bring it out to you we speak to you about it it's, it's cool, it's and it makes it means our menus a lot more fluid as well because you know we can because it's just us. There's nobody controlling anything that you know. I, I could maybe go out and serve one of the courses that we do at the pop up in New York, and somebody might say something about it, and I'm you know actually yeah you know that that is right. You know maybe what I say isn't always gospel, yeah. and then the next day it might be different on the menu. So everything is just kind of constantly going, and it means that we just learn and grow way quicker than if we were just like. Ten chefs locked in a dark, locked in a room with white jackets on, sweating over a stove. Right. You know, so it becomes a lot more personal. Well, how much of that street food effort in this pop-up restaurant idea is kind of your attempt to distance yourself or set your own identity outside of Tom Akins and the other big names and big restaurants you've worked for? Yeah, I mean, when you you kind of get to a point where you you know you've worked in lots of different places, you you've got plenty of ideas, but like most chefs you kind of find yourself with a bit of a glass ceiling mm-hmm. because you can either you know spend every penny you can, well we do that anyway but you can get everything together that you can and you open up a restaurant and you commit yourself to these kind of four walls and you and you try your best and it's a seriously hard game i mean th- this is as well but <clears throat> it's a little bit different because we can we feel like we're still growing we feel like we're still learning and by travelling around and we're doing about a dozen cities in the next six months mm-hmm. and every time we do a new city it's not like we've got our food and we are taking a menu around the, the food grows and changes so you can imagine how different our menu will be in Taipei or, or in Tokyo or in Rio mm-hmm. or even in San Francisco or here because we just kind of go to each place and really kind of learn from it and, and let the menu kind of shape itself mm-hmm. okay and so the first pop-up was in Hong Kong yeah and that went very well. Yeah, that was crazy, actually. That was, <clears throat> we kind of thought we'd bitten off a lot more than we could chew. Like, we started off with uh, like three or four of us. It was like myself, Kevin, and his wife. And then we put the, um, we just put the tickets on sale, like over like Facebook and stuff. And um, 
yeah, we sold like out the we sold out the first week in about half an hour, and then we were just oh my god. So I kind of called up all the mates I could, rallied so I rallied around, book flights, got people to come from Sydney and Denmark, and just called in a lot of favours. Um, and then we ended up doing it for three weeks, and um, yeah, we cooked for about eight hundred people, and it was just absolutely magic. It was yeah, indescribable. Like for that, for the guests, for us, it was unreal. It was the first kind of sense of real creative freedom that that we'd all had before. It was out of like, nothing as well. We were. This wasn't a, really a planned thing. You know, James had just finished at Noma, and he decided he was like, we should do something in Hong Kong, maybe try and do my own food because obviously feeling extremely creative after that experience and then it just grew and grew and grew and, and we just couldn't believe it you know and the next yeah, thing we knew nice. we were doing 70 covers a night when we were only really planning on doing 10 you know we had, we'd had no expectations yeah. at all for it and yeah and then we had to just kind of call it a day you know a three weeks was enough and we were like yeah. well, we need to stop even though we could have definitely could have continued because we wanted to start this we were like this is it let's get to New York let's get to these bigger cities and Okay. Get into it. Why Airbnb? Now that's a that's kind of something that we we really really love at the minute. I mean, <clears throat> apart from every time we choose a city, we spend like Kevin and I probably spend what like three days on Airbnb flat out because you've got to find you've got to find somewhere that fits us, somewhere that's like obviously you've got logistical things. Like, is it big enough? Does it have a big enough kitchen? Is the actual layout even a good platform for us to use? What's the location like? And then you've got Imagine you're on Airbnb and you, you see somewhere you like, you find an apartment, and you're like, okay, I'm going to write this guy a message. And usually it's like, oh, me and my couple are coming to stay in New York for the weekend. Instead, you're writing, can we do a 40 seater restaurant for a week in your apartment? And they're just like, what is, what are the, who are these guys? Mm-hmm. So it, that kind of takes a lot of, um, a lot of the kind of right approach to get people on side. So you've got to find the right landlord as well. But Airbnb has just kind of unlocked so much for us because. I don't think anybody's really done it quite this way before, but it it's really it gives you a lot of freedom because it means that we can go to any city we want, we can create a restaurant or find a restaurant that's kind of any style as well. You know, so we what we tend to do is find the right apartment. Like <clears throat> this one we have in New York is definitely the right apartment. It's absolutely unreal, but we have to let the restaurant kind of let the apartment do the work instead of having an idea in our heads and trying to like sort of take it from one city to the to the next mm-hmm. we find the apartment get a kind of feel for it and let it grow from there wow. it's um it's really important from a service point of view as well um so when you come to our restaurant we don't want you to feel like you're in a restaurant we want you to feel like you're in our home like that is really important if you feel like you're in a restaurant we've kind of failed because that's that goes back to the name as well one star house parties you know high-end food one, one Michelin star that's kind of it's kind of a take on that it's a bit um, of a joke it's well a bit of a joke yeah we're not taking ourselves too seriously <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then house party we, we re- literally want you to feel like you're at a party and it's an experience and you have the entire evening at your table there's no rush you know you're you're welcomed by extremely happy people and we're just so glad that you're there and that's that's what it's all about it and, is like a dinner party yeah. it's, it's, a, it's like going to a dinner party but you're going to a dinner party where five professional chefs live. That's kind of what it what it sort of feels like, or what we aim to aim to give. Okay, great. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back.
Hi, this is Peter Kim, the executive director of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network. And we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MOFAD Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing flavor, making it, and faking it. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami. And the Willy Wonka-inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MOFAD Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at mofad.org. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Kristen Baylor, filling in for Harry Rosenblum. With me today is James Sharvin and Kevin McRae, two enthusiastic young chefs from London who are in the process of creating a six-night pop-up restaurant in a West Village townhouse. So when we left, we were talking a little bit about your process of, of setting up this restaurant. And I want to know a little bit about the why. I um... Okay, so, well... I mean, we kind of mentioned, we brushed over this earlier, but when you spend a decade or so training, you know, training in restaurants, so when I talked about chefs that are that are kind of at that crossing point between having learned a lot of stuff and then wanting to do their own thing, we're also in that same place as the guys that are coming. Um, so we kind of got a little bit, not tired of it, but a little bit frustrated with the whole the whole setup of of the restaurants that we've been in. Like a lot of the restaurants that are at, like on the San Pellegrino list, like Noma and, and Tom Akins and stuff, they have a lot of similarities you know and and to us they're amazing don't get me wrong they're absolutely incredible and you know we're very lucky to have to have worked there and to have learned from those people but what we want to do now is, is something with a bit more freedom i think and you know there are a lot of restaurants like and with the michelin guide as well it's something that we've kind of really sort of become quite opinionated about is because it a lot of it is it's very kind of fixed and structured they the Michelin Guide have a way of, they don't mean to, but they force a lot of restaurants into creating a formula. You know, they, they think that, okay, we, this is what you need to do to get one star. You have to have this many tables, this many time. You have to have this many courses, this, you know, after this starter. And that waiter has to wear a bow tie. And it's complete nonsense mm-hmm. in a way, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of it. And so we wanted to do something that was completely aside from that and something that couldn't really be too sort of patrolled or, or influenced by outside forces. Okay. Well, what about the uh, the space itself? Now that you're in New York, what what's special about it? The space that we have here. Um, so we. So when we when we booked it, we were kind of freaking out because um, it's definitely the most money we've ever spent on anything. I mean, it's I mean it's because of where it is. I mean, in New York, like I'm sure everybody listening to this knows how expensive it is to live in New York, and we've just learned that the hard way. Um, and it's it's about I think what is it about? It's about fourteen hundred a night. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's the most expensive Airbnb in Manhattan, but it's worth it because it is when you walk in, you, you know, when you look at pictures of this place, it don't get me wrong, it looks great. But when you walk in, you get it. Like it is absolutely stunning. It's the kind of like, like top two floors of a loft and there's a mezzanine level um, underneath where the bed is as well. And so it's got this huge skyline and exposed brick walls and it just feels like a home that could be a restaurant. And there's not really, you can't really force that upon a residence it just kind of is and that's why we sort of it, I think it was about it's about three times as expensive as the other options that we had that would have worked but wow. you know we just fell in love with yeah. it and so we just kind of took the plunge and hope that people like being there 
we, we kind of obviously we're not set out to spend lots of money we're not trying to it's <laughs> we don't want to you know and it's and we're not looking for these like immaculate places with like marble floors and that's got to have character and we'll spend more to actually have a bit of a rundown kind of beaten up venue and there is a lot of choices with venues but they, we need to be able to live in there that's that's the point because if we don't can't live in there then that price then becomes even more expensive because yeah. then we need to find a place to stay and that's how all that's how this whole kind of Airbnb thing really happened was because out of necessity mm-hmm. we were like we actually thought it would would be a, a negative thing you know to be really, oh we're gonna have to live in the restaurant yeah, we, I think some people, people aren't gonna really like that yeah you know? some people are like what these guys are living here that's yeah, really and, weird and but, then actually we found that people really liked it it's kind of fun and, and it was fun for us as well you know it was just this it's just this new kind of dynamic and we just we lived and breathed the restaurant then and you were literally if you were having your dinner two foot of you, away from you was my, my bed oh, wow. and you know people were like why is there a bed there and I was like well I've got somewhere to sleep you know <laughs> um, so yeah. yeah it's quite a funny social experience as well because we obviously there's seven of us um, chefs and we all know each other pretty well but you kind of walk into that restaurant you walk in through the front door and because you're living and working there and we're all working like 20 21 hours a day you can imagine, like, to get a restaurant done between seven people, it's a bit of a stretch. And so you pretty much walk through that door and say goodbye to the outside world for about seven days. And it's like the weirdest unfilmed reality TV that you could think of. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's pretty funny. Well, um, your experience is a very personal one anyway. The dining experience mm. is one yeah. where you Certainly, actually yeah. serve yeah. the clients mm. yourself, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's a huge part. Like, it it really sort of makes it it makes it what it is mm-hmm. you know, because I think one thing that we really found in Hong Kong is that and what actually we found for a long time but when you you know when you when you get served a dish that's been really really thought about you know it might not be the best dish you've ever had in your life but somebody has spent sleepless nights thinking about that dish and pining over it to make it what it is and they come and if if a waiter maybe they've done a great job but they explain to you what it is you're like okay that's what it is I'm going to approach this and I'm going to eat it and find my own way but if a chef comes up that is like sort of ferociously passionate about the food that he's made and it's not just explaining what it is but why it is that way and what to look for when you eat it you know try eating a couple of components together see how that works or try it with this wine or there's a lot of different things and it turns food into an experience okay all right is there a uh, a story behind the dishes that you're serving there is well i mean like i said each each city has a new menu so it's a kind of very fast story but the menu that we've pretty much finished now actually for New York we're kind of glad we can say that um, is we we sort of thought that each city when we came up with this idea would be driven by ingredients you know we thought you know if you go to Tokyo you, you know what ingredients you're rolling with and you're going to put together a pretty fun menu right or even San Francisco is the same but in New York it's so vast and there's so much amazing food available it's, and it's not like inherent to one or two ingredients it's not there's, I can't think of an ingredient when I think of New York like a raw ingredient that sums it up because you can go for amazing like Vietnamese like sushi pizza whatever and it's all pretty much as good as it gets here so what we kind of learned over the last week or so is that the food here is colourful and it's exciting and it's vibrant and it's personal and you know I think we're going to roll with that yeah. I think that is kind of our that's our brief. Yeah, absolutely. 
have you brought anything with you from the UK? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we actually brought a hell of a lot. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a long time in the making this one, but there's, um, there's a few kind of really cool things that we bought. In, uh, in Hong Kong, you have, um, there's like a street that they have there, and it's like the dry seafood district. It's um, an area called Sheng Wan. And they, they actually they do loads of amazing stuff you can imagine. Like, you know, we're chefs and we walk down that street going, what the hell is that? But um, they do these scallops there. And what they basically do is they take, like, really, really fresh scallops and they dry them quite quickly. And when you dry scallops fast at, like, 60, 65 degrees, they go a bit darker and they caramelize, as opposed to if you to dehydrate something at 40, it remains kind of much paler and it doesn't get quite that... It doesn't break down the aminos much. So we, um, yeah, we, we get these scallops and they, what they do is dry them and then they soak them in seawater again and dry them again. So the second time that they're soaked, they absorb the water and then when you dry them again, they leave behind the natural salt from the sea. So it's kind of like, and we use it as like a seasoning. So we make like a scallop and we make like a scallop fudge where we emulsify beeswax into it. And so all that stuff we obviously had to bring with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's stuff that we really wanted to kind of show people because we just absolutely love the ingredients and it's, it's a great way to it's a great way to kind of try new things as well but we actually had to kind of smuggle those from hong kong to london and then from london to here so we got lucky like yeah. when we when we uh, when we got off we kind of opened our cases and we were pretty relieved that everything was still there but even like plates like yeah nowhere, like we brought the lot yeah yeah because the plates are really this is something james and we want to touch on but the plates are really specific to what we are what we're all about you know because they're they've got when you're delivering your food on a plate it's, it's got to have a really specific kind of look yeah. to it and it's a very kind of chefy thing mm-hmm. but like it's really important and i think i think probably customers just kind of overlook because they just it just kind of blends into everything else that's going on yeah. around them but for us it's, it's such an important thing so james actually kind of found these plates in like where was it in there? It was, uh, it was actually another place in Hong Kong. We did, we did a lot of shopping in Hong Kong. Um, but it was another place in Hong Kong, and they, they basically, these, these uh, guys are just kind of smashing out plates. They're just making them, like, in the back in this kind of weird sort of part of the New Territory, which is, like, a kind of part north of Hong Kong Island. Um, and we managed, to put to, we managed to get, like, 60, 70 of these plates, and we persuaded these guys to make them. And they are absolutely amazing. And you can imagine how expensive tableware is, and we kind of wrap them up in, like, bubbleware and, and cloths and stuff and hope for the best. Because um, it's really, it's really all we can do. Yeah, and it turned out for the best. Yeah, yeah. we got away with it. Not a single, no casualties, no casual. <laughs> awesome. So, what what's the word on tickets? So we're like, we put the tickets on sale a couple of days ago. We're about halfway there now. Okay. Um, Where and, can people? Oh yeah, so they can get tickets at um, <clears throat> at www.onestarhouseparty.com. Um, and we've got about ten, fifteen tickets for each night left uh, for the six nights. So there are some there. Um, and that's always kind of, believe it or not, that's actually the biggest challenge every time we go to a new place because we have to, we have to kind of embed ourselves in a new city again and, and try and tell people that you're here. So that's what's been so amazing that you could have us uh, on here and you know we can tell people about what we're doing. Well, I'm glad we could accommodate. <laughs> what's next? Um, well, San Francisco, um, but in between that we've got like this monumental road trip. So oh, yeah. um, we start that on the 11th, and we well, this is the part where it gets really tricky because we have to, <laughs> and this is just a completely unknown as well because we have all this restaurant that we've just built here, and we're talking chairs, tables, tableware, water glasses, everything, machinery, and a little oven, like top to bottom what you'd expect to see in a restaurant. And we have to pack it into an RV with five other people and then drive across the United States 
um, and that's going to take us like 11 days um, so <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen it's going to be funny but, um, it's going to be it's going to be crazy but so we're going to kind of take on the kind of southern states and go through and get some nice barbecue and I'm assuming st- staying at Airbnbs along the way um, well, well, well we'll be staying in the, the RV uh, okay <laughs> Um, yeah, but maybe maybe one or two nights to have We really struggle with uh, the work-life balance. Yeah, you know? I see that. Yeah, so it's just kind of sleep where you can. Um, and then, yeah, we, we get in San Francisco on the, the 24th. Yeah, the 24th. Yeah. And then we have pretty much three days to pull a restaurant out of thin air again. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it never stops. We had time here, you know, and we had the whole time in, in, in the UK before we actually mm. got here as well to, to really plan. I think we're um, planning on. Um, we have obviously we have this RV, and uh, and Kevin's kind of going to do a lot of the driving. I think, but the plan is to sort of be promoting. We've got an RV with a. It's pretty modest, but we've got an RV with like a little kind of table, so it's it's like a sort of working office for us. So the plan is we're always trying to work one pop up ahead. So when we're driving from New York to San Francisco, in an ideal world, San Francisco's mostly ready and mostly organised, and then we can start promoting and talking about Taipei while we're on the road from New York to San Francisco. So it's kind of a, a always a progressive thing, and it becomes like an addiction because you can't stop. You know, you have to keep going. It's it's pretty wild actually. Yeah. When we're talking about it now, I'm actually realizing what we've got ourselves oh, into. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Try and forget about it because we've just got. Yeah, have almost got to kind of take a problem at a time. Like a big yeah. problem now is the it just pulling off this restaurant, <laughs> and then the next thing you know, a forty four RV will will be sent outside our apartment. It will be like, oh, I've got to actually drive this. You know, never driven in America in my life, and I'm going to be suddenly. You got this. It's pretty sketchy. Right here, really. <laughs> That's some pretty dicey uh, taxi drives. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a funny one. I can um, just stare at Manhattan. Is the kind of <laughs> I'm actually more worried about the tableware getting to San Francisco than, than getting it to New York. Mm, that's true, yeah. Because so the tableware, um, the way we serve our menu, actually, a lot of it's built, you know, kind of getting it more into the social approach. Um, a lot of it is really built and based around um, it being fun. So we, we serve a lot of the dishes as kind of centerpieces. So if you were to come as like a table of four or six, which I would think is probably the best kind of size table to come and try our food yep. because it's a sharing tasting menu. So we have a um, well actually we have a dish called the chicken and the egg. So it's like hay infused. So we toast a load of hay and we render chicken fat and then we just confit the chicken legs in the hay infused fat. Um, and then we take like egg yolks and cook them at 65 degrees and then we kind of whisk them up and you, you serve it with like a warm egg yolk fudge. But we serve it all kind of on like toasted hay in the middle of the table. And then each person gets their egg yolk, so it's like a fondue kind of thing. Wow! But um, it's kind of it's a lot more of an experience, and we always we try to serve the food in a way that really represents the origin of the ingredients. Um, so that's always you can imagine all those chicken houses for for a seven course tasting menu, and it's yeah. the contents of our apartment right now. You would just not believe. You step inside. <laughs> well, I think that's about all of the time that we have today. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for so much. Being here. It's been real fun. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you to Harry Rosenblum for letting me try my hand at not cursing <laughs> while I'm on air. I think we've done it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've off. <laughs> Thanks to Aaron Fairbanks for being awesome. Thank you to David, our engineer. And yeah, you can find our show and lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. I'm Kristen Baylor. Thanks for listening.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.